Well, welcome back to Kaisis. That is our new theme song by CCR. That's Bad Moon Rising. Those of you my age will all be familiar with that song. Why, why are we picking this as our theme? Well, the song is pessimistic. There's a bad moon, moon rising. Bad things could happen. And we are told today by so many that we're to be optimists about this life. That the Lord is reversing the curse and making things better. And we're not to have a pessimistic eschatology. But we we need to bring back pessimism, Oswaldo. <laughs> that's, that's not what I want to hear on my, <laughs> on my morning pastor. <laughs> pessimism is theology for adults. Hmm. I mean, whether you call it pessimism or realism, there's no hope in the Bible for this world. This world is passing away. Life is difficult. It can be miserable. Yes, it's punctuated by little blessings, but the Christian life is a struggle. The church is always going to be a struggle. Church is always struggling to survive, struggling with problems. All, all the theologies of glory, as Luther penned it, whether it's prosperity gospel, health and wealth, or dominionism, Christian nationalism, that God is going to set up some kind of a, a kingdom rule of religion in this life, of Christianity. Um, it could be newthetic counseling, that if you just do the right things, you'll overcome your problems that you have from the fall, from the curse. This hyper view of sanctification where everything is resolved in this life. No. It can be Pentecostalism where you're expected to experience this high emotional heavenly presence of God and hear his voice. Or it can even be fundamentalism where you're expected to have the answer to everything. Mm. You just know the answer to every little question. Because you have a Bible. All these are theologies of glory. They end up hurting God's people. And it ignores the fact that we are the wilderness people. Yeah. I mean, read your Bibles. This is one of the basic fundamental uh, plots of the Bible. That we are the wilderness people. We're in the desert. We're not in the promised land yet. And so I'm going to read a quote from Calvin. You tell me how optimistic this is for this life. Calvin writes, The goal for believers, therefore, when they assess this mortal life and realize it's nothing in and of itself but misery, should be to direct themselves wholly, briskly, and freely toward contemplation of their future and eternal life. How's that for optimism of this world? Yeah, not, not, not too positive, not too hopeful. Yeah, what is it about this life that has convinced so many modern American Christians that the glory is coming now? Hmm. And especially if we just do the right thing, if we just repent the right way, etc., etc. Now, I'm saying all this to introduce our topic today on parenting. And so many times I read, my purpose is to raise godly children. That's what I'm doing. 
Well, you raise children, but only the Lord can raise godly children. Hmm. So this this optimism that ends up killing, and um, let, let, let's bring back eschatological pessimism. How's that for a, a ministry? Why not? Let's make that popular then. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on uh, this realistic view of life? Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about this before, Pastor, that I think it has to do, there's a sociological element to it where we live in one of the the wealthiest countries in the world, right? One of the most powerful countries in the world. So there is this idea that uh, the we kind of mix our eschatologies a little bit um, with the fact that we equate our own political state with our eschatology. If our nation is doing well and wealthy, that must mean that um, you know, our, our, our glory, our religion is doing well and healthy. And it's, you know, what's interesting, Pastor, this, this trend is not necessarily something new in church history. When Rome was, was prospering, Christianity became legal and, and, and sanctioned by the emperor. Christians started thinking, you know what, this is the glory come, you know, and as a story unfolds, that simply wasn't the story. And the church was forced to return to what you call this eschatology of pessimism. Uh, because it did not last. Yeah, it never lasts. And, um, you know, the, you could say the early church up till 400 or so, they were pessimistic of this life. Mm -hmm. They knew their hope was in the return of Christ, not in the glory that will come in this life. And that's yeah. that's the basic view of the gospel. So that brings us to Proverbs 22.6. Here we go. Tra train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I wrote an article a few years ago on this in the Aquila Report, but one author wrote that this verse has been a great comfort to parents of young children embarking on the awesome and fearful task of raising children, yet a dagger in the heart of parents of older children. And so what does this often mean, this, this optimism that if we train our children rightly, then they will be Christians. If we do the right things, then they will not depart from it. The problem is, if this means that God will bless our faithful Christian parenting with faithful adult Christian children, then you need to throw out the entire book of Proverbs. It's worthless. Because Proverbs is a warning from a believing father to his sons who are about to go out into the world on their own. Proverbs 4 says, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. Let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight, do not forget. And do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her. And she will guard her. She will she will guard you. So if Proverbs twenty two six guarantees the faithfulness of children brought up correctly, well, this father has obviously brought up his children correctly. Then why is he warning them not to turn away to the path of death? Hmm. I mean, if he's already trained them well, and this proverb is true, then they're good. It is clear that these sons could go the way of the fool and suffer. 
not only in this life, but in the life to come. They could choose death. So it's unfortunate that so many have taken 22.6 as a guarantee of the salvation of our children if we train them correctly. And by doing this, they completely negate the whole book of Proverbs, as well as the testimony of the entire Bible. I'm sure in your life you've heard this verse used or misused before, right? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, it was super common, and it was always in, in anything that had to do with parenting or Proverbs, this, this verse always came up. And if I remember correctly, I remember we went to Mexico once, and I was still learning about infant baptism at the time. And the only evangelical church, uh, the only Protestant church at my, my dad's village was a Presbyterian so church. So we went there, and I talked to the pastor about infant baptism, and it's interesting. We, we talked about it, and he was like, God has promised salvation to the children of believers. And that's why we baptized him. And this verse came up too. And it was really confusing for me. I was like, okay, I guess that makes sense. But usually, right, I mean, this this one verse doesn't just stay alone. It's usually combined with that passage in Joshua where it's like, but me and my house will serve the Lord. And then that other other verse in Acts 16.31 where Paul tells the, the jailer that you will be saved, you and your household. So between this combination of, of, of verses um, you usually get this idea, right, that your children will be saved, but only if you do, you know, a, a godly up, you give them a godly upbringing, or else you will receive consequences. And like, I guess, like when I was younger, I didn't understand the weight of that because one, I wasn't a parent or anything. But now that I'm a little bit older, not a parent yet, but I see how the weight and the stress that that must be on a lot of parents' shoulder when they when they think that. Their children's salvation depends on how they, they you know, raise them. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and for those of you who aren't Presbyterian, we don't baptize our children based on a promise that mm. they will be saved. No. Yeah. Uh, so let's look a little bit at this verse. The Hebrew is very um, helpful because it doesn't say what we, we think it says. The word here for child is not the normal word for child in the Hebrew, but the word na'ar. And throughout the Old Testament, that word is used mostly for a young man, not a little boy or a baby. And so whatever this verse is saying, it's train up a young man is the idea. He may already be a teenager. But the key point is that the word should is not in the original Hebrew. It does not say train up a child or a young man in the way he should go, but it says directly from the Hebrew, train up a young man in the way he is going. And so the should is added more as an interpretive guide that they think whoever first interpreted that, they thought that's what it meant. But there is no should. And even the word train up, the Hebrew word here for train up is hanak. That's not the normal word used in the Old Testament for to train children. That word is only used to mean dedicate. It's not used once in the Old Testament to mean train up children. So, for example, 1 Kings 8.63. So the king and all the Israelites dedicated the temple of the Lord. 
So when they dedicate the temple, that's the root word Hanak. Deuteronomy 20, verse 5. Then the officer shall speak to the people, saying, If there is any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it. Again, it's to dedicate your house. And so what does this verse mean? Um, dedicate a young man in the way he is going. And when he's old, he shall not depart from it. Well, my Hebrew prof in seminary, uh, Mark Futado, admitted that it's really difficult to know what this verse even means. And we probably don't. But he suggested he may have been referring to some kind of a ceremony for a, a new king. Hmm. Uh, that Why the word dedicated, not training. Now, the the fact that there's no should here has led some to the conclusion that the negative is what's being said, not the positive. If you take the shit out, you have train up a child. And then, and so medieval Jewish commentator Levi Ben Gershon wrote, this is what it means. Train a child according to his evil inclinations and he will continue in his evil way throughout life. And so the Jewish people in the Middle Ages turned it around the way we looked at it. And they said, you know, and if you look at other Proverbs, it sort of matches, doesn't it? Yeah. That if you don't correct a child, if, if you allow them to do whatever they want, they're going to end up this way. And so that's what they thought this means, if you take the should out. But Doug Stewart, who is a professor of Old Testament at Gordon-Conwell, he traces the history of how this verse has been mistranslated. Uh, first in the Vulgate by Jerome, and then the Septuagint. Well, the Septuagint first, you know, the Greek, um, the Greek interpretation of the Old Testament, then the Vulgate, then the King James just followed the Vulgate. And so translations have just followed the King James. And, and people need to remember that when you're translating a Bible, you don't have time to do a long word study of mm -hmm. every single word. You know, you only have a million words <laughs> or so. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a lot. And so you just tend to borrow from the previous uh, version. And so it's very dangerous to build a theology on this one obscure verse that doesn't even match the rest of Proverbs at all. And we really don't know what it means. Look, looking at the history of translation and the Hebrew difficulties, any thoughts on those? Yeah, I, I looked through like over 20 translations, and only two, Pastor, took a, a neutral translation where it's neither positive or negative. And the, the most, I guess, popular of those two versions was the Christian Standard Bible. It reads, start a youth out on his way. Even when he grows old, he will not depart from it. So it could... It could Honestly, reading like reading reading it, it almost sounds like a negative. Start a youth out on his way, the, the way of the of the youth, and he will very likely stay on that in a negative way. Uh, but like you said, it's just very interesting that um, all the other translations adopt a positive. So you have to add some sort of clarifying should right to make it positive, or even translations go as far as to add the right way, Ch uh, train up a child in the right way. When, when when you just when you noted that there's nothing, those words are not even in the original uh, Hebrew, which is just very very interesting. 
but like so i guess our, our point for our audience is not that um it's not that you can't trust your english translations i think the last the last thing you said should be highlighted the problem is when you base your theology on, on one verse and i think that's when we have to be extremely careful because um one for the harm but two that one verse can have a lot more complications than you think yeah and then when we look at the book of proverbs in general Proverbs are general observations of wisdom. Hmm. They're not promises that this will happen every single time. Uh, the, the writer of the Proverbs is, is applying wisdom, looking at how wisdom works out in life. And these in this life are all generally true. And there's always a warning or an encouragement attached, but it's because of a general truth. So to take this as some kind of an ironclad promise, that if you do your part, God will do his part. Um, it really mis misinterprets the whole book of Proverbs. Yeah. And so if we want to understand, for example, okay, well, if this is saying something about parenting, let's look at the way the other Proverbs speak to parents. And it's probably going to match that. It's probably not going to be the opposite or something so bizarrely different. And what what is the theme to parents in the book of Proverbs, well, correct and teach your children. There's never any outcome promised, especially salvation is not promised. Hmm. But it's more, you know, doing what the the, the what the parent in Proverbs is doing. Teach them the right way. And, and don't let them just, you know, live, especially as little children, you know, as they grow. Correct them. Whatever that means, correct them. It's basically what parents are told besides teach them. Yeah. And so we see throughout the rest of the Bible, we have Cain and Abel. Why did one son accept the Lord and the other son, Cain, the firstborn, reject the Lord? Was this a parental failure on Adam and Eve's part? Did they not train Cain in the gospel? Did they not tell him about the gospel? But did, were, did they do a better job with Abel? Is that what we are to get out of that? Uh, Jacob and Esau. Why did Jacob end up being converted and not Esau? Did they raise Jacob differently? Hmm. Um, you know, did Isaac and Rebecca just do a better job with Jacob? And in Esau, they failed. Is that the point? Well, doesn't Romans 9 tell us that's exactly not the point. Hmm. It's not because of anyone's uh, works. And then you have Joshua 2, 9 and 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now what happened? Did that whole generation that believed become bad? Were they bad parents? Why did the whole next generation reject the Lord? Hmm. Now it says that they did not know the Lord. It doesn't mean they didn't know anything about him. It doesn't no. mean they didn't even know what happened in God leading them out of Egypt. Of course, they're out in the wilderness. Of course, they knew why they were there. But they did not know the Lord. They did not care about it. They did not value it. And so there's no suggestion here that, 
Well, the parents did not raise them correctly. And so in the Bible, there are two reasons for someone to become a Christian, two reasons for salvation. We have a heavenly reason and an earthly reason. The heavenly reason is that God chooses them. Many are called, but few are chosen. The earthly reason is that people believe the gospel. They do believe. They do choose. And they are responsible to believe the gospel. Those are the two reasons. There's not a third reason Hmm. that they were raised correctly or not raised correctly. Salvation is not attributed in the Bible to anything else but God's election and man's um, desire, man's choice. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. You know, I'm actually very curious. Um, well, because like when you read the Gospels, Jesus is actually very clear about the Gospel and the kingdom he brings, how it's going to be divisive. Um, Jesus actually assures us that embracing his kingdom would bring enmity within a family. Husband against wife, you know, father against son, son against father, and so on and so on. That's just, it's just very interesting that uh, for Jesus... Um, he understands that the kingdom he's bringing is not gonna might. He's not throwing the option away. That it's not, he's not saying that your children can't embrace this kingdom, but he brings a almost like a general warning that this gospel that he's bringing is actually gonna divide. So all this to say that both the Old Testament and the New Testament are in harmony, and saying that there is no promise per se. You know that your children will be saved on the basis of your faith so uh, I, I don't know it's just very interesting it's almost like jesus here is like dispels any uh, that whole thought by saying my gospel will actually create enmity yeah i'm glad you brought up that verse because there's this continuity isn't there that we see the yeah. same thing in the new covenant yeah. because some people will say oh yeah this happened in the old covenant but the promises are better and so on the new covenant we should expect our children to be saved. When Jesus says no, No. um, the gospel will divide families. Hmm. And so the, the other objection that people have is they say, well, God blesses the means. And so even though it is God who saves, he uses means. And so he uses the means of parental training to save children. He's promised to bless the means. Well, God has never promised certain results if the means are used. He's promised that he will use the means for his glory. So, for example, in Reformed theology, we say preaching is the chief means of grace. Hmm. In other words, we see in the New Testament a primacy of preaching that God will use. And yet, we never say that we expect everyone who hears a sermon to be saved. We, we never talk like that. Yeah. And yet preaching is the chief means that God has promised to use. You know, when a missionary goes out, we don't tell them, now we expect all those that you preach to well, that will be converts hmm. because God has promised to bless the means. Now, if a missionary, you know, spends 30 years on the field and he has two converts, What do we say about that missionary? We tend to say, well, they've been very faithful in the midst of terrible hardship. You know, we praise them 
Mm-hmm. But we don't do the same to parents. Yeah. If parents raise children and the children don't follow the Lord, we don't say, well, they've been very faithful in the midst of terrible suffering and, um, and circumstances. But we do that to the missionary. Hmm. And so parental upbringing doesn't have more promises attached to it than preaching. And so people are not saved by a covenant of works. God doesn't say to parents, okay, here's the deal. Here's this works relationship. You raise your kids in a certain way. You be faithful in this, 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 this. Um, Make sure you don't do this. Make sure you do this. And if you do these things, your kids will be Christians. That that's a covenant of works. That's not the yeah. gospel. Yeah. And so there's no such thing in the Bible, and you can't use Proverbs 22 to introduce a a covenant between you and God based on your performance. No. Well, what are the dangers do you see in this way of thinking? One, I think it shows how we might be, especially when you have a a denomination, maybe like. Presbyterians who have a, a more developed theology of children, that we may be slightly superstitious, maybe, of what it means to have be chil- like have children who are part of the, you know, the the the, the visible church. Um, so, like you said, infant baptism, we we simply set the child apart for the Lord in an external way. It doesn't promise him salvation or anything. It's simply a sign of the gospel. Um, but it's interesting, Pastor, because you, I remember distinctly in a Sunday school because I felt confronted by you because you're like, people think that when you baptize a kid or you have a covenant child, that this somehow gives them some sort of like a bigger chance or give a bigger percentage of salvation, or at least that's how people treat it. And it was so funny because that's how I used to think indirectly. I was like, well, it's, it's more likely for a child to become a Christian because it's exposed to the gospel. And it's so funny because it was in direct contradiction to other convictions like, it is God who elects. It is God who regenerates, not a particular upbringing. So, um, like you said, the, the 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 danger at the end of the day is that we make this into some sort of covenant of works, where where your your children's salvation is contingent upon um, how how good or Christian how Christian you you make their upbringing uh, to be. But but something else, Pastor, that I noticed, and I don't. We could probably explore this in another episode in the future. But I just wanted to note this very quickly. It's just very interesting that the language that Paul uses in First Corinthians seven, when he talks about um, having an unbelieving spouse, saying that if you're a Christian, um, your unbelieving spouse is sanctified. And it's a very weird passage in general. But here's the thing, though. Um, it's interesting that Paul, even in that same passage, still identifies the unbelieving spouse as an unbeliever, despite being sanctified by the believing spouse. Yeah. In other words, there is a sense in which you could have children in Presbyterian theology who are part of the visible church and still be identified as unbelievers, that those those two are not mutually exclusive for Paul. And once again, we could probably explore that in another episode, but even the New Testament doesn't, doesn't hold to, to what people think this passage means. No. Yeah, that's exactly right. <clears throat> you know, what happens is you have the those on the far right will say, you know, if you send your children to public schools, then you're breaking covenant with God and they will not become Christians. They will lose their faith as if the 
schools are stronger than God. That God cannot save your children unless you indoctrinate them 24-7. And, and, you know, what a low view of God. And, of course, it exalts people. You know, and, and of course, it's always on the back of the vulnerable because those who don't have the finances, those who have special needs kids and only the public schools, as you know, has the resources to help special needs kids hmm. compared to anything else. Uh, those around the world where um, homeschooling is illegal, hmm. uh, you know, the poor, uh, you, you simply hurt them because you give them the impression that it's sort of like the tele-evangelist who says, if you sow a seed to my ministry, God will save your children. <laughs> you know, so if you follow my agenda, which is anti-public school, then your children will be saved. It's simply a, it's a very, um, I can't even think of the word, but yeah, it's a terrible theology. It's, mm. um, and it always hurts people. It hurts a certain type of person, especially. And, and, and it's manipulative. It's just very manipulative, using God for our own agenda. Mm. And so if a child grows up in the church, grows up in a Christian with Christian parents, knows the gospel, but does not believe, there are certain things we should not say, and especially from this verse in Proverbs 22. We should not say to them, well, don't worry, God will bring them back. We hear that a lot, but they're saying that because of Proverbs 22. Well, you raised them right, and so God, God will bless them as if there's some kind of a promise. Okay, we don't have to worry anymore. And then many of them don't choose to come back. And so then what do we think? Well, I don't even know if I'm a Christian anymore. Hmm. I must have really failed God. Now, as parents, we always have regrets. You know, we always wish we would have done better. And so we should, you know, confess our sins and weaknesses there, and maybe even to our children, depending on, you know, how bad it was. But we were never in control of their salvation. The Lord always bears the burden alone to save people. And he doesn't need a certain type of upbringing to save anybody. Yeah. He gives them his spirit, and they know the gospel, they believe it. So we do have responsibilities as parents in the word. You know, obviously to love our kids, to be an example, not be a hypocrite, pray for them, um, teach them in the way we can. Uh, but at the same time, they're not saved or not saved based on our example. Even if the parents are bad, children are still responsible to grow up and believe the gospel. Yeah. So no one's going to stand before God and, and have an excuse. Well, my parents were hypocritical. Oh, okay. Then I understand why you didn't believe. Well, don't, don't worry about it. No. If you know the gospel, you're responsible with the light you have to believe it. And then we have to ask the question, was God a bad parent? Because if you train up people rightly 
and that's the guarantee that they'll respond rightly, then what about the Lord? Let me read to you from Deuteronomy 1. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents, in fire by night and in cloud by day, to show you by what way you should go. And so when parents, you know, say, I must have failed because they're not Christians, I'll say, well, are you a better parent than God? God reveals himself here as a parent to Israel, like a father, caring his sons, and yet they rejected him and did not believe. No. And so if it doesn't even work with God, who are you to think you can do better? And so I say to parents out there, watch out for Job's comforters. There are parents and pastors out there who think so highly of themselves and their parenting that they're convinced that if your child didn't believe it is all your fault, you didn't do it right like they did. And that's exactly what Job's comforters said to Job when Job was suffering. And that will destroy your soul, will destroy any assurance you have with God. You see, either they're taking credit for the salvation of their children, it's all pride, or they have parents with young children and they're under the illusion that they can control the spiritual outcome of their children by their teaching, their habits, their convictions, etc. But that's the proud oppressing those who are oppressed and are suffering. And God is always with those who are being oppressed, not with those who are oppressing. So be very careful that you don't allow these type of people to destroy your faith. And so we don't know exactly why some believe and others do not. This is a divine mystery. We don't have the answers for that. And there's no misunderstanding of one proverb in, in the book of Proverbs that sort of resolves all this. So any, any final thought on Proverbs 22.6 and how it's being used? Yeah, I think what you said in the beginning has to be at the forefront of our minds, that we have to have a, a wilderness theology, an eschatology of pessim a pessimist, the uh, I guess a theology that, that, that reminds us, you know, that this, that this current life we live is, is pessimistic, you know, um, because just, just thinking about kind of what you said and, and the hurt that a lot of people have gone through, it doesn't hurt any, uh, like it hurts both ways, right? Whether you hold, you hold the popular view of, of Proverbs or not, it still hurts when your children aren't believers, right? But I can only imagine the despair that comes when like, um, you hold, you think that you are somehow responsible for their unbelief. Um, that must bring an extra layer of burden and everything. So that's think that this is where the, the gospel comes, right, Pastor? And that you, you, you as you, you try to constantly remind us that th this is God's work in the same way that our very salvation is in the very hands of God. The salvation of our children is in the hands of, of, the, of the Lord, regardless of, 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 of how you 
you decided to raise raise your kids. Um, but all this to say that I think that having a, a wilderness theology allows for hope and assurance. Um, not, not assurance that your children will become Christian, but that simply the assurance that at the end of the day, God is in control and that it is it is he who saves. So this this weight is off your shoulders. And I know, and I know, and I know this is like it's it sounds obvious for some people, but um, I think that that has to be constantly in our minds that we are in the wilderness. We're not in the promised land yet. Yeah, and if you become a pastor one day, and we've talked about this, remember that you're preaching to dying people. Mm. And even though among every congregation there are frauds, um, the Lord will take care of them. They're not really listening to you anyways, but preach to your dying people who are suffering. They're weak. They're struggling with doubts. They're in the wilderness. Don't preach an eschatology of everything working out and being great if they do the right things. No. Uh, that's not what wilderness people need. Wilderness people need to be pointed to the promised land. Mm. And there are many suffering from this misuse of Proverbs. Yeah. All right, we'll stop there. And uh, there is a bad moon rising. It is the world. And the answer is Christ is coming. <laughs>